Sometimes a really, really small measure can make an extraordinary difference. We believe that even a single building is a piece of urban design. Hello, and welcome to Tete a Tete, the Rice Architecture podcast series. I'm your host, Lindsay Chambers, and today we have the first part of our interview with Rob Rogers, principal and founder of Rogers Partners, based in New York City and Houston. An alum of Rice School of Architecture, Rob founded Rogers Partners in 2013, working on projects of all sizes and programs to explore the design of spaces where architecture, landscape, and the public realm converge. Several notable projects by Rogers Partners include the Henderson Hopkins School and the firm's redevelopment of Constitution Gardens, which we are excited to talk about today with Rob, in addition to learning about how Rogers Partners works through design problems and more. Let's dive in. Rob, thanks for being on the podcast today. Terrific. Thanks for having me. You first founded Rogers Partners in 2013. What would you say sets your firm apart from other architectural practices? I have to give you a, a little backstory. I practiced in New York, running a firm for 20 years before we really reformed to make Rogers Partners. And it's funny because when you set out to start a practice, it's a little bit ad hoc. You're not sure what projects you're going to get. You're not sure how you're going to work with different people, and it kind of grows. So I made a decision about 20 years in to actually reform very deliberately with people that I'd worked with for 10 or 15 years with an intention to do very specific work, and it's been terrific. What sets us apart is that we didn't set out to say, how big can we grow or what can we do? It was really more like, now that we've been practicing the air like this for a while, what do we really want to accomplish? And what are our key values? I actually published a book called Learning Through Practice that actually outlines some of the key values that I share with my current partners. And I've talked about them in the past just to give you some idea one is what I call the impact of small things. Sometimes a really, really small measure can make an extraordinary difference. And so we look for that kind of opportunity. One of the values we share is delight. We think that not only should you enjoy the practice of architecture, others should enjoy the product and the outcome, that it's it's strict and it's serious and all of those things, but it also, you know, without a little fun, life's pretty tough. One of the other ones we talk a lot in our office about authenticity, whether it's structural systems, whether it's materials, whether it's a contextual quality or a building's place in history. So I think what I would say is that it's been really interesting to sort of restart a firm with a kind of deliberateness and intentionality of culture. And you ask how that separates us from other firms. I think every firm has its own culture. And it's really about understanding, deriving, and driving that culture as part of your practice. A lot of those values sound really great. I hope we get to talk about some more of those a little bit as we talk about some of the projects that you've worked on. Really starting at the beginning when you're starting a new project, what is your approach to considering the surrounding context? Some things you would expect, deep analysis, understanding of history, but I think there's also an examination of the cultural condition that's going to produce a building, right? So already before you start, there's been kind of 
alignments of perhaps politics or policy or economics, cultural conditions, neighborhoods. I mean, let me cite an example. We did a school with Johns Hopkins University in East Baltimore. And fortunately, one of my partners grew up in Baltimore and had a deep personal knowledge of the social struggle and economic struggle that actually is represented in that neighborhood. And so understanding not just what the fabric was, but the origin of the fabric of the neighborhood. A hundred years ago, it was 100% owner-occupied mill workers, factory workers, even tiny homes, but owner-occupied. So there was a incredible resilience and structure in the character of the neighborhood embodied in the buildings, you know, main streets, alley streets. The streets were the social places through that. And so when we approached that project, we really tried to understand that morphology of the neighborhood because we were building a new school and the school was backed by Johns Hopkins. And the neighborhood, which has been in dire, dire distress for 50 years, deeply distrustful of big, powerful institutions in the city. And so we really came in and said, you know, if you say, oh, we're coming in with a new school, and it's going to arrive here like a satellite and save everybody, and this is this fabulous thing. We said, that will, it will never work. The neighborhood will never accept it. And so we really talked about how that school could be of the neighborhood, come from it, belong to it. And we brought it right out to the street. No fences, right? Just like the townhouses in the neighborhood. There's not a fence between the community and the school. No yard situation. The buildings frontal right in there. And the social spaces of the school are all mapped on the former alleyways and streets of the neighborhood so that, in fact, the comprehension of the character of social spaces within the school mimics and carries over the memory and the conditions of the neighborhood itself. It's been really exciting. One of the more thrilling moments, it sounds silly maybe, but the thrilling moments of my life as an architect is uh, when that school opened and this third grade boy came blasting through the front door and he sort of looked down this way and he looked down there at these big generous daylit hallways and said, is this for me? It crushed me. You know, it's like that is what architecture can do. And that process of designing that school, you had to really go back almost a century and kind of understand that history and really do a deep dive. The, the morphology, the character of the neighborhood, like the size, shape, organization of the buildings was all based on land ownership practices. The big factory owners would actually develop whole neighborhoods and there were sort of large-scale townhouses on the main streets that were the, you know, the foreman and the top workers and the, I don't know if they had executives in those days, but it was, it was people that had the larger-scale homes. And then the, the basic menial factory workers had what they called the alley houses. They were maybe 10 or 12 feet wide, 20 feet deep, two stories, really small, but very dense. And it created an incredible social fabric. And I think understanding the background of a place in which you're building is really fundamental in that way. And of course, that means every project is wildly different. And if you look at our portfolio, the buildings don't look alike. They don't behave similarly. You can't point at it and say, oh, that's just like the one they did over there. And it's a different kind of practice in that way for us. Yeah, it's really about developing specific solutions for different contexts and, of course, programs. And I think 
Another one of your projects that would speak to this a lot is the Constitution Gardens in Washington, D.C. Your project deals with an existing public space, which was first developed by SOM and Dan Kiley in the 1970s. Um, the site is situated amongst important monuments on the National Mall, which all come loaded with their own kind of histories and forms of symbolism. How did this context inform your design for the pavilion at Constitution Gardens? Once again, it's kind of interesting what the history of Constitution Gardens, because that portion of the mall, all of which you know was a swamp at one point in time, right, and then became landfill. During the Second World War, they built what was then called the War Department, all of the buildings covered that entire portion of the mall, and they continued to exist there all the way into the 70s. And the Nixon administration decided to clear that portion of the mall and build Constitution Gardens for 1976 on the bicentennial. And they did it kind of in a hurry. You know, they knocked all the buildings down, a lot of the debris was left. The project was a competition. We were working with Pete Walker out of Berkeley. I remember the first time I walked the site with Pete and we were talking about the work of SOM and the work of Dan Kiley in the original Constitution Gardens. And uh, about an hour into that walk, Pete said, you know, they pretty much got it right. It just wasn't built well. And uh, they left all this debris so the trees didn't grow and the land sank and they never built the pavilion. And so it was like a gesture of a start. We began to talk about do you start over or do you actually operate and recognize what was there and so we began to think about how we could actually not necessarily rectify but amplify what the intentions were of the original design so we were going to increase the volumetric play of the topography which would give you new soil for better trees but it would also give you acoustic isolation from Constitution Avenue we would talk about what is the acoustic quality of the park. What are the things that we can do to operate on that? The site of the SOM Pavilion is on axis what is now the World War II monument. So the site kind of was taken. It still felt overall like the right place for a kind of headhouse relationship between the mall itself and gardens and lake. But you couldn't occupy the now, if you know the World War II monument, it's deeply axial very formal, very classical. We couldn't violate that axis. And so we brought the building forward so it cantilevered out over the lake to make that space. Really a porch and a transition element going from the mall itself down to the lake and the gardens. And the idea was always that Constitution Gardens should be a respite. The Vietnam Veterans Memorial, the World War II, these things are deeply emotional. They're very powerful experiences and we really felt to create a quiet park-like setting where you could decompress, but your kids could run around, you could get a hot dog, you kind of get ready to keep moving in the experience of Washington. So that was the program, as well as services for national parks and those things. So we kept the building super clean, super low. It's a triangulated diagrid of a structure intended to be made originally out of some carbon fiber, but then later also in other kinds of precast elements. That would be simply a marker, really a quiet kind of box, but the box's edges are splayed to half the degree of the diagonals that L'Enfant developed for Washington. So it quietly plays into the sort of underlying geometric 
structure of the mall and gives it an open face towards the lake. We also intentionally kept it very low. It's not a monument. It's not a museum, right? It's a pavilion on the mall. So it's down within the canopy of the trees. So it belongs to Constitution Gardens, but doesn't stand out from other areas visually on the mall. It also was a key thing for the National Park Service to develop a place for interpretation. How do you know where to go? Who am I going to ask the question? And so it gives you a base and a home, not just for them and facilities and maintenance and stuff, but actually a, a deep part of the interpretive mission of the National Park Service on the Mall is to be available for questions and to be approachable, which is harder in the memorial settings or the formalities or the long lines around the Washington Monument. This was a casual place for that kind of question, interaction, and engagement that really enriches the entire experience of the mall. We touched a little bit on these works that you've done in the public realm, but you have a lot of projects that even if they're not entirely public, they manage to address questions of the civic. So in places that are initially conceived of as private, how do you introduce opportunities for interaction with the public? It's interesting in the posing of the question because I have a little blurb I use sometimes. I say, we believe that even a single building is a piece of urban design and that so much of the formality of different kinds of teaching about architecture where there's this focus on the form and the focus on the thing. And I think as our practices matured, it's a much wider view. And we really talk about the interaction of a building, its spaces, what surrounds it, how does that work? I think one of the projects where I learned so much around that is when we did a project after 9-11 for the New York Stock Exchange in the Financial District. And it was interesting because it was the first time we did a project that had no buildings whatsoever. And it was actually streets and curbs and it was about interaction and it has major landmarks like Federal Hall, the Stock Exchange itself that are all there. And it was a great study in thinking about minutia that's not usually part of it, textures. How do you know how to move? How are you guided in a city? Uh, what do your behaviors do? And I think that lessons from projects like that come back into the building environment. Go back to the school in Baltimore for a minute, maybe. There's a whole public component to the way the building engages the street. So library, a social center, an auditorium, things that have the flexibility to operate for multiple audiences are brought forth. So in that sense, it's sort of like a programming approach to creating public opportunity in public realm. And other times it's really more of a physical one. We worked for Sounds like an oxymoron, but a benign fracker, an oil guy in Oklahoma City who wanted to locate his headquarters downtown. And we had really interesting early conversations. And we kind of told him, said, you know, downtown Oklahoma City is filled with empty buildings. And if you just put another skyscraper up here, a big ego move, it actually doesn't do much for downtown Oklahoma City. So why don't you buy this building that's empty 40-story Pietro Belusky building from the 70s and buy all the land around it because it's cheap and let's start developing a bigger idea about what a corporate presence is, that it's not a front door and a tower with some lights and a name on top, but it's actually 
response to the city. So we ended up working together for about seven years. We did three major buildings. Two of them were renovations. One was a complete ground up. And we connected all the buildings with a very high quality public space and public realm. And it was interesting when we first started that project, the people would say, ah, you know, it's Oklahoma City, you can't make outdoor space. It's too windy, it's too cold, it's not good. And that's really not true. The kind of things we've learned about making public space, especially in the city, is people are intuitively super capable of finding comfort if you provide the opportunity. So you don't try and make one place that's perfect. You make a bunch of places. So if you need a breeze, if you need to be in the sun, are you with 20 people, are you with two people? And you provide that kind of choice and opportunity within the public realm and the landscape, then you really do create a sense of occupancy. And so in the end, we covered several major city blocks, built several buildings, and it was a powerful, catalytic move. And so the buildings that had been abandoned or under-leased around it began to fill up because we had a principle of putting restaurants in the bottom of the buildings, making public spaces happen. That's a story where it's actually a private corporation that could have built a sort of insular, singular corporate environment, but because of the benevolence, frankly, and our affinity with that in saying, hey, this is really an amazing thing to do for the city, we're actually able to turn it around and just become one of the major public spaces of Oklahoma City. One of your approaches that you already mentioned was looking at context, and you noticed that the context there would not really be fitting to have just another skyscraper that didn't give anything back to the city, but you saw it as an opportunity to really bring something to the context that would serve it well and serve it better than maybe the clients originally intended. And part of the context for Oklahoma City is that they really underwent a radical demolition during the urban renewal phase. And so to preserve consequential fabric, one of them was the original Braniff building, which we renovated and put a new face on the back of it because now it was exposed and reoccupied the entire Belusky building. You know, I think those are fundamental moves that were right for the city at the large scale. For more information on Rogers Partners' work, please visit their website at rogersarchitects.com. Remember to tune in to our next episode, which will feature the second part of our interview with Rob, focused on his work on campus and his time spent at Rice. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a review. And don't forget to subscribe to our page on your favorite platforms to keep up with new releases. This show would not be possible without the work of Siobhan Finley, Jessica LaBarbera, Takudzwa Tafuma, Carrie Lee, and Shauna Forney. I'm your host, Lindsay Chambers, and this has been Tete a Tete.